Guys, welcome again to CCC's first Good Friday Fellowship Worship Service. Um, it's good to have you. And again, if I've never met you before, I'd love to meet with you afterwards, um, after the service. So if you guys are not familiar with Good Friday and what it is, Good Friday is a time for us to ponder on the death of Christ and the cross, what Jesus has done for us, for sinners like us, on that cross. And today, um, we're going to study just three verses, John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. And usually less verses means shorter sermon, but I make no promises. And uh, we'll see we'll see how things go. Um, so our passage today, um, as, as you read it, you see that um, it's a portrayal of the cross. You see what Jesus did on the cross for us, or at least a, a glimpse of the, the a full event of the crucifixion. You see what Jesus did. Um, and also what John the author does today is he actually relates the cross with obedience. Now, it took me so long, the majority of my introduction to write it, the majority of it was done to where I can somehow avoid using the word obedience in the introduction. <laughs> because it's just, it's not what Good Friday is about, right? Or at least that's what we think. Good Friday isn't about what we're supposed to do. Good Friday is about the good news of what God has done for us. So the word obedience probably doesn't really belong in a Good Friday service, or at least that's kind of my sinful heart. That's how I thought about it. Of course it does. But I just, I wanted to avoid that. But, but John the author didn't see a need to um, pin gospel and obedience with each other. He saw that those two things actually flowed and moved together pretty fluidly. Um, um, in relationship with each other. So we're going to talk about the cross, yes, and Good Friday. We're going to talk about what God has done for us on the cross, but in such a way um, and how obedience plays into that. Okay, and there's one thing, the reason why I think a lot of us, or I think, I know I was scared with using the word obedience, especially in a Good Friday service where the focus should be grace and not what we do, is because I think oftentimes we relate the word obedience with a feeling of, suppression right we're being suppressed we have to obey god and we're called not to listen to our own desires right and and christianity becomes all about self-suppressing becomes all about doing what god wants and not what i want and and i think the word obedience has a bad category like that and i think what john the author does in this small three verses really all chapter 19 and 20 but with a small snippet is he's trying to show us that there's a whole topic in the bigger topic of obedience that we're missing. There's a whole segment of the bigger topic of obedience that we're missing. And that's the issue of trust. Once you look at obedience with, with the lenses of trust, I think it, it destroys all the negative connotations that we culturally might have imposed on the word obedience. Okay, so um, how, how we grow in the Lord and how we learn to pursue the Lord depends a lot on how much you trust him. Because he, he asks for us to do a lot of things, doesn't he? And he has pretty big requests. And if you don't trust him, you're not going to go so far. The, the, the depth and the distance of how far you obey the Lord will be directly related to how much you trust him. And John the author really marries those two concepts for us today. So there's three things I want to point out from our sermon today. First one is trust and obey. He is all controlling. Second one is trust and obey him. He is all powerful. 
The third one is trust and obey him. He is all loving. Trust and obey him. He's all controlling. He's all powerful and he's all loving. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump into it. Father, give us the mercy and the grace to look at your word through eyes that have not been too diluted by our culture, although all of ours are. I pray that you give us the mercy that we can look at it and view it in such a way um, without the definitions that, that what we might have imposed to some of these things, mercy, grace, obedience, trust, and let your word dictate what it is to us and by doing so, not only portray your son and what he's done on the cross for us, but also push us forward um, to living out the gospel in all of our lives. Jesus name we pray, amen. All right, first point. Trust and obey him, he is all controlling. The first reason why John is telling us to trust God or, or the, the first reason of why John says it's okay to obey God is, is that he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy because he's all controlling. So let's begin in the story. Where do we see Jesus on the cross being all controlling? If anything, the cross portrays a lack of control, right? Or at least that's what we would think. But John here is giving us a picture of the opposite. Well, let's begin with the story. Now, we know this is in the middle of the crucifixion because of the first two words in verse 18. It says, after this, that's our passage starts. So when you, when you see the word after this or the word therefore or the word for in the beginning of a passage, which happens often, you want to look at what comes before it. What is the for there for, right? <laughs> you want to look at what, what's before it. What's the whole point of this passage? You look at what happened before. So you look at the rest of, uh, of chapter 19 and you'll see it's all about the crucifixion, right? Um, and you may be asking, how can John give us a picture of the cross, but tell us that Jesus is in control? Okay, let's continue the story. After this, verse 28 says, after this, knowing that all was now finished. Finish is another word for completed. After this, knowing that all things were completed, all things were finished, all things was done. Well, what was finished? What was completed? What was completed is all the prophecies about Jesus Christ's crucifixion in the Old Testament. If you look at and you study the previous passages, you'll see that all the minute details about Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, him, him being crucified, it, every detail of it is being fulfilled through the crucifixion itself. And you see it in, 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 in chapter 19. Let us let me just read. I think I printed out the verses for you so you don't have to flip your phones or your Bibles. Um, all the verses I'm going to use outside of our passage are printed there. So let's look at chapter 19. One of the things that happened in Jesus' crucifixion, or the whole process of Jesus' crucifixion, um, 19 verses 1, 3 to 5, is that Jesus was publicly shamed. He was publicly put to shame. He was being embarrassed. He's being um, made fun of in public. Okay, so chapter 19 verses 1 to 3 and verse 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of Jews. They meant that sarcastically. And struck him with their hand, most likely in the face. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. You see here just a shame, a time where our God and our king and our savior was being shamed, dis humiliated, and, and not only privately by the soldiers, who, by the way, were only instructed to flog him, not to embarrass him, but they made sure to go the full length. 
and also embarrassing, and then make that embarrassment a public spectacle. Jesus' public display of being undesirable is actually fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 to 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant. This is in the Old Testament, before Jesus was even born. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, had no, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from who men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus' public portrayal of shame and being humiliated was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Then we have another one in uh, chapter 19, verses 23 to 24. It's another Old Testament prophecy fulfillment, and this one's more explicit. Um, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, so this is after the crucifixion, they took his garments, his clothes that were left over, because he was, by the way, crucified naked, for further humiliation, they took whatever was left for his clothes, garments, and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. This is still the Bible talking. This is not my words. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots even to the detail, even to the fact that his clothes were being divided among the soldiers in such a way that casts, lots were cast to get them. This is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, verses 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me or surround me, a company of evildoers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands and feet. This is before Jesus was born. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. <laughs> Everything in the crucifixion fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of what will happen to the detail. So here we see a situation where God was seemingly out of control. But yet in a situation that he seemed to be out of control, he was actually in full control. Everything was being fulfilled according to what he said will happen. A situation where God is seemingly out of control, could this be true in our lives today? God is saying, I'm in control. It may seem like I'm out of control, but I'm in control in every aspect. Now, how does this persuade us to trust him? Well, who wants to trust a God who can be out of control? Right? And it's not a common occurrence for us in our lives today. In times in our lives, we might have situations where it seems like God is out of control. And there's no one controlling the situation, I'm left to my own devices, my own wisdom, my own understanding. And what John is saying is, even in events like that, be assured he's in control. If God is not absolutely sovereign, sovereign down to the T, then there should be absolutely no reason for us to trust him with our lives. And it's not like he's asking us to do small things in the Bible. He's asking us to do pretty big things, even to give our very lives to him. If we don't trust him, why would we do that? John here is saying, look at the cross. He's always in control, even in times when he seems like he's not. And what happens is we usually think he's out of control because of a particular situation in our lives, and we don't follow him because we lack that he's in control. So why would we follow God who's not in control? And what we have, what we, what we, what we conclude is then, we should decide for ourselves what is best, right? 
we should decide for ourselves what is the next step. Because what he tells me to do, or what seems like to be his will, according to what I know about him in the Bible, just doesn't seem like the best next step. It doesn't make sense with my paradigms. It doesn't make sense with my wisdom. So I'll decide what's best for me in the situation, and I'll be my own God. That's what sin is. And John is saying, no, don't do that. He's still in control. Trust him. Follow his ways. He's your God. You're not your own God. Trust him. But not only does John tell us here that he's all controlling from the cross, he also tells us God is trustworthy because he's all powerful. Let's go to the second point. First, trust and obey him. He's all trusting. He's all, he's all controlling. Second, trust and obey him. He's all powerful. Let's continue in the story. Verse 28. Let's begin verse 28 again, but then go to the middle of verse 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, so Jesus was on the cross aware of what's going on, knowing that all was finished, all the prophecies are now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, the scripture there being Old Testament. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Okay. Here we see another fulfillment of an Old Testament passage. Jesus said, I thirst. And this, these words, I thirst, prompted the soldiers to do something. What did the soldiers do? Verse 29, they used a hyssop branch to give Jesus sour wine. This is an Old Testament fulfillment. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But it's important for us to realize that this act of this act that soldiers did by giving Jesus wine with a branched hyssop wasn't an act of mercy. It was further insult to Jesus. First notice, they didn't give Jesus the sponge. They had a perfectly good sponge to use, right? A sponge would contain more liquid than a hyssop branch. A hyssop branch is just a branch with a bunch of leaves at the end. Imagine trying to wipe a water full of table with leaves. It just doesn't hold that much water. They didn't use the sponge, they used the hyssop branch. It was kind of leaves loosely connected. And, and you kind of imagine the picture there is the wine sprinkling everywhere, sprinkling through hyssop leaves, an imagery we'll get back to later. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, dying on a cross, a hyssop branch being sprinkling wine everywhere. Um, and they probably did it because it was an act of mockery. It was a continuation of what they did to him in the first, in the beginning of chapter 19. Remember, they were called to flog him. They were called to beat him up. But they went the extra mile to crown him with a, with a crown of thorns to make fun of him. Look, look at your king. They went the extra mile to give him a purple robe. Purple was a kingly color back then to make fun of him. Look at your king. And they, they, they struck him in the mouth and the face a few times. And then the bleeding Jesus with a crown of thorn with the purple robe, were dis was displayed in front of the public. Look at your king. This is most likely a continuation of that act of mockery. Why not use a sponge that can hold much more liquid? Jesus was thirsty. Who knew the last time he drank? He was captured on night. Uh, they was brought in front of the uh, Pharisees and the people. He was. He was. Uh, they found him guilty somehow, and they they put him in captivity. They beat him up. And then another night went through, and then the next morning they displayed him. And then after all that, I don't know, two days maybe, that he had to carry a cross about 600 meters length. Uh, not the cross, but the distance from how long he had to carry that cross from the place he was judged to the actual place he was crucified. 
And then after that, he's crucified on the cross. And now we're at the end of the day. It was almost nighttime. So it's a few days. Who knows the last time he had a drink? I thirst. And you see here soldiers wailing around leaves that can barely hold any liquid. And you see your king, your savior, probably lounging around trying to get one drop or two drops or three drops. And you see these soldiers making fun of him. Can you get some wine? Can you get it? That's, that's the picture here. It's further mockery. And we know that not only from the context of the passage, but because it's an Old Testament fulfillment of a time when this Messiah will be mocked. It's a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 62, verse 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all, all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Okay, hold on. At this point, some of you are probably thinking, I don't know if that's fair, because you're telling me that the New Testament is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. That's kind of like cheating, right? It's kind of like, you're, you're saying, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm reading some old prophecy, and then I do something to fulfill it. And then once it's fulfilled, I then say, look, it's fulfilled. See, it was true, right? It's like, it's like uh, uh, Michael coming in and saying, I'm prophesying that the KFC will be finished by the end of the day. And then you see him eating all the chicken. And then afterwards he said, see, my prophecy was true. The KFC is finished. That's what people think often. It, it's, 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 it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's fake. It's not, you can't do that. You can't say the New Testament fills the Old Testament that way. But notice, who's fulfilling the prophecies? If you read again, chapter 19, chapter 20, yes, it was Jesus ultimately who fulfilled it. But who was doing all the work? Who was doing all the actions? The Roman soldiers. The Pharisees, they were the ones fulfilling the prophecy. They were the ones who mocked Jesus and publicly displayed him. They were the ones who divided his garments. They were the ones who used a hyssop leaf to make fun of him and, and mock him. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 62 were all fulfilled by people who did not want the prophecies to be fulfilled. You see, they're fulfilled by people who actually did not want this person to be the Messiah. They're fulfilled by people who was trying to disprove Jesus' claim as the Son of God, as the Messiah. So it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. It, the people who did it were the ones who didn't want it to be true. Crucify him. Let's, let's prove him wrong. That's their whole goal. Do you see the scene here? Take yourself, put yourself back there as best as you can. You can use your imagination. It's okay. You look back there, picture the situation. The scene is a bunch of people overpowering Jesus because they did not want the Old Testament prophecies to be true. But actually, the whole time, they were the ones that were fulfilling it. <laughs> the Pharisees who didn't believe in Jesus said, crucify him. They fulfilled it. The soldiers who didn't believe in Jesus mocked him throughout. They fulfilled it to every detail. A famous old military general once said, when a king achieves victory by exploiting his enemy's weakness, that's power. Listen. But when a king achieves victory by using his enemy's own strength, 
that's absolute power. When a king achieves victory by exploiting his enemy's weakness, that's powerful. But when a king achieves victory through his enemy's own strength, that's absolute power. What Jesus did on the cross, he achieved victory by exploiting his enemy's power. This is the king of kings. He achieved victory by exploiting his enemy's strength. Those who crucified Jesus, the Pharisees, the soldiers, thought they were the ones displaying strength. Look at us. We're strong. We're in control. We have, we have the situation down. This guy, who is he? A king? Look at him. He's weak. He's powerless. He's not in control. He can't be the king. Little did they know, their seeming victory, their seemingly in control, their seeming strength, is what God used to achieve his own victory. When a king achieves victory by exploiting his enemy's weakness, that's power. But when a king achieves victory by using his enemy's own strength, that's absolute power. Look, John the author says, do you not see? Do you not see how glorious, this, this glorious display of strength? Do you think it's a good idea to trust yourself over this guy? He's, he's in control, even in situations that doesn't seem like he's in control. He's all-powerful, even in situations that he seems like he's weak. Are you really still going to trust yourself over him? Are you still going to live your lives ignorant of his commands? Do you think you have enough control, enough power, enough wisdom to navigate through the terrains of this life by yourself? Not to mention the terrains or, or, or our views of life after this. Go ahead. <laughs> if you want to, but I'm trusting him. He's all controlling, he's all powerful. And I know, and I know trusting him and not trusting ourselves often sound like suppression, right? It sounds like we're being suppressed. It sounds like I can't do what I wanna do and I have to do what God wants me to do. And, and the very idea of suppressing goes against our postmodern 21st century idea of how to live life, right? For us, it's all about we need to do what we want and what we desire and don't let anybody else tell us otherwise because, because we need to express ourselves and we need to, we need to be, that's not, a, that's not all bad. I think there are good parts of that. And I know that it's a struggle. It's hard. It's hard for me too. I often want to say, just God, just let me be me. But, but if you view the lenses of obedience through trust, it, it changes everything. Let me, let me give an example. An alcoholic. An alcoholic who um, is finally recovering from alcohol, alcoholism. And he, uh, he finally gets his life together. He is six months in. I don't know when the hardest time is, but I think six months will be pretty hard at that point. Especially if something bad happens in their life and you're just, they just need a drink. Six months in, he walks by a bar. And he goes in because his friends are there, and he's like, hey, I'll just hang out. And then um, there's, a, there's a beer. There's a pint of beer in front of him that his friends are sharing. And there's an empty glass because if you're in a bar, people assume you want to drink. And his friends fill up the glass, and he's there, and, he's, and he, just, he wants to take just one sip. You know what? Just one glass. One glass, that's it. Everything inside of him is screaming, don't be so legalistic. Just take one sip. Just, take, just drink one glass. But in the back of his head, he remembers his friends 
and a support group in AA. And he remembers them saying, don't do it. I know in your head you're gonna justify it like it's okay, just one drink, just one glass. In your head you're gonna give, you're gonna find every single reason to do it. Trust me, I've been there. I've been sober for 30 years and I've been there. Don't do it, don't do it. And at that point, the alcoholic can very easily say, why you gotta suppress my desires like that, man? Let me be me, let me be free. Let me just do what I'm passionate about. Let me follow my own heart. Let me, let me just have one sip. Thinking that one sip will then give him freedom. Where it really leads him back to the slavery of alcohol and the slavery of his own desires. You see, it's, 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 a, it's a matter of trust. Is that person gonna trust himself and his own judgment and his own passions and desires and his own mind? Or is he gonna trust his friends that's been through AA for 30 years and is now sober? We're all slaves of something, do you know? Even when we say, nothing controls me, I'm free, I'll, I'll do what I want, what you're really saying is you're a slave to your own desires and it has full control of it. It, it boils down to trust. Are, is that alcoholic gonna trust himself or is he gonna trust his friends who's much wiser and been much, through much more than him? John the author is saying, trust God above yourself. Although sometimes it may feel like suppression, and think it's freedom to obey your own voice when actually it's in opposition to what he's told us in his word in the Bible. But what you're really doing is trusting yourself over him. Who will you trust? An all-controlling, all-powerful being or yourself? But the question remains, trust him for what? Trust him to do what? We can sit all day and we can talk about the thousand things that he wants us to trust him in. We can actually spend our whole lives here. But I believe there's, there's one thing in specific, in particular, that John the author is calling us to trust God with, and this one thing I think will affect the rest of our lives. Okay, the third point. Trust and obey him, he is all loving. Again, it'll take a lifetime for us to talk about all the things in life that God has called us to trust and obey him in, because he calls us to trust and obey him in all areas of life, right? And how to spend our money, how to navigate through physical intimacy before marriage, how to treat work and career, how to navigate through family dynamics, how to interact with culture and the world, how to view church and church involvement and what church actually looks like, right? It can take our whole lives to exhaust all of this. But instead of doing that, I just wanna talk about one issue of trust, just one issue of trust, because I think John here is, is putting this issue to the forefront, but also I think at least logically, if we can trust God with this one thing, we can logically trust him with all other areas of life. Okay, this is the one issue that we're called to trust him in, and it's the issue of our eternal salvation. Now, how do you know this is the main issue here? How do you know Jesus dying on the cross wasn't just a moral example for us to follow? How do you know Jesus dying on the cross wasn't just something, a portrayal of what love looks like? How do you know it has to do with our eternal salvation? Okay, there, there's one more fulfillment I want to point out of the Old Testament. It's not, it's not a specific fulfillment um, of, of a specific prophecy like earlier, Isaiah or a psalm. But it's a fulfillment of an imagery. The imagery of the hyssop branch I talked about earlier that the soldiers used to mock Jesus with. See, all throughout the Old Testament, the hyssop branch has always been associated with cleansing, and salvation. Let's look at the verses I printed out there for us. 
I'll just read them through. Leviticus 14, verses 4 to 7. This is how God commanded the Old Testament priests to heal people at the time from things like diseases and stuff like that. The priest shall command them to take him who is to be cleansed, two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and what? Hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthware vessel over the fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them, dip the hyssop and, and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed. Hyssop, blood, sprinkle. Numbers 19, 17 to 18. For the, un for the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the birth sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Back then, when you touch a dead body, you're considered unclean. So this is how you get clean. Then a clean person shall take, what? Hyssop and dip it in water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishing and all the persons who were there and whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. If you're unclean, again, hyssop, sprinkling. Last one, finally. This is probably the most popular one. You've probably heard about this one. Exodus 12, when Israel was, was uh, delivered out of the slavery of Egypt, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Remember what Jesus was described as in John chapter one, the lamb of God. Kill the Passover lamb, take a bunch of what? His hook and dip it in the blood of the lamb that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. See the imagery here is there, Passover lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God in the New Testament being killed and the sprinkling of blood everywhere from hyssop leaves. What did Jesus do on the cross? Was it just a moral example for us to follow? Was it just a portrayal of what love means? I mean, sure, they're not less than those things, but they're much more than it. See, he, he cleansed us. This is what John's trying to tell us here, by pointing these things out. He cleansed us. He saves us from our sins. He delivers us from the slavery, not of Egypt, but from the slavery of our own sin, to what? To his promised land. Hebrews 10, 19, 22, a few more. This is in the New Testament, exp explaining why Jesus died. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you talking about how we were, we were living in sin, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, made right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what the Bible is all about. It tells us of, of a great God, a creator, that reveals to us how we've sinned, and the only way we can get back to this God is through himself. And what he's done on the cross for us by taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. He created us, and in our sin, we've rejected him. We have, we have, we have trusted ourselves, see? We have trusted ourselves over him. And what we're doing there is we're following our own passions, our own desires. What we're saying is, I'm God. You're not. Is that not what Adam and Eve did? The knowledge of good and evil? I'll decide what's right, what's wrong. I'll decide what's best for me. I'll use my own wisdom. And I'm going to reject the all-controlling, all-powerful, all-loving God. 
That's what sin is. We, we've taken God off his throne and put ourselves on it. I'll decide how to use my money. I'll decide how to relate to my boyfriend, my girlfriend, emotionally, physically. I'll, I'll decide on that. I'll decide what marriage is and what marriage isn't. I'll decide how to use my free time, what to browse online, how to interact with my culture, how to do church. I'll, I'll decide. Don't suppress my desires, God. Let me be free. Let me follow my own desires. And John, the author, is saying it's, it's not suppression. It's not about suppression. It's a trust issue. We all have trust issues. <laughs> I do. I do. See, see, packaging it under the banner of suppression versus freedom, that's just an accepted 21st postmodern, 21st century postmodern way of saying, I want to do whatever the heck I want. Don't suppress me. Let me let me be me. And take a look under the hood. Open the veil, John says. It's not about suppression. It's, it's trust issues. Who are you going to trust more? And with this lack of trust, not only have we offended our creator and our king, but we've wounded our lover, our ultimate lover, God. And this offense to a personal, eternal, loving creator king has brought upon us eternal consequences, which he himself bore on the cross. Oh, how gracious of God we have. Let me end with one last thing and then we'll end, okay? One last imagery fulfillment, I promise. But this fulfillment is not from the Old Testament. There, there's a theme, there's a motif, as people talk about it, throughout the book of John, that's fulfilled here on the cross, and that's the motif of thirst. The imagery, the theme of thirst. A few times in the book of John, John records Jesus claiming to us to be the source of living water, where all our thirst will be quenched. Okay, let's read just two of them. John four thirteen to 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. See, there, there's thirst. Jesus saying, I have the water that will make you no longer thirsty. John 7, 37, 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But in these instances, John never tells us or Jesus never tells us how he's going to do that. How? What is this thirst he's talking about? And how is he going to quench this thirst? Well, let's continue. This theme continues as we get closer to the crucifixion. John 18, when the soldiers were trying to capture Jesus in the garden, when Peter was trying to save Jesus from the soldiers, Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. And he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Talking about the full wrath of God. So there's this theme of we, we are thirsty. Jesus is going to fulfill our thirst. And then it continues as we get closer to the cross. Jesus will drink the full cup of God's wrath. And now look again at our passage. Where our Savior, who's gone through unimaginable beating, carried a cross for about 600 meters uphill, mind you, nailed to it, remained there almost all day, probably had a few days before he had his last drink, drink and he says, what? I thirst. And this is only physical thirst. Just like the thirst Jesus says we will be quenched from is not a physical thirst. Jesus is not going to be actual water for us to drink. But we have a deeper thirst. We have a thirst that creatures have when their creator is not in relationship with them. A thirst, a need to be constantly reminded by the only opinion that matters that we are lovable. 
that we are cherished, that we're treasured. That's the thirst we have. And when Jesus was thirsty on the cross, it wasn't just physical thirst. Sure, it was that. But it's much more than that. On the cross, the Father left Jesus, remember? Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who was with eternally with the Father, has never been separated on the cross, separated himself, and made himself thirst of this affirmation, of this love that he can give us. And now the Father will never leave you to question those things about yourselves ever again. Because Jesus on the cross gave it up for you. That's living water. That's eternal life. That's salvation. This focus of John's crucifixion account here is God saying, I understand, I know, I know I'm asking for a lot from your lives. I know, I know it's hard to follow and obey and trust all that, but, but trust me, I'm all controlling. Look at the cross. I'm all powerful. Look at the cross. And I'm all loving. Look at the cross. Trust me over yourselves. And if we receive him and we consider him trustworthy to rely our eternities on, should we not then also trust him with the immediate things in our lives? Right? To trust God with our eternities but not trust him with our money is like saying, I trust an investment banker with my whole life savings, but I can't trust that same guy with $5. It makes no sense. Logically, if we, if we deem God a being trustworthy for us to rest our salvation upon, our eternal salvation upon, should he be not just as trustworthy to give control of our money or our relationships or our work or everything else in our lives? But he knows our minds. He knows that two and two don't always click and things that are real here aren't always real here. That's what sin does. And when we fail, he again points us at the cross and reminds us once again, we are forgiven in him and clean in him. Reminded once again, it's okay. Trust me. Get up. Keep walking. One step at a time. Have you forgotten? I'm all controlling. Trust me. I'm all powerful. Trust me. And I'm madly in love with you. Trust me. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this word that on the cross you have displayed who you truly are. Not only your holiness, that you are a God who cannot be with sin and the consequences for sin is brutal and is costly. And it costs you the biggest cost of all, your own life. Not only are you holy, but you're gracious and you're merciful that you forgive sinners that you love us and you pursued us and you died for us and you forgave us in such a way that did not cancel out justice because the payment was still paid by yourself, still just and loving, but also you're all controlling and you're all powerful and that you're madly in love with us. That now we have living water, eternal life because you, the only one who deserve it, have died. And now we can sip upon the hope of this eternity in the midst of our crummy lives or, or in the midst of our anxious world because you have entered into this world and sipped upon yourself the death that was meant for us. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.